Father, thank you so much for being with us today. Lord, I pray that as we dive into the word, that you would be uh, present among us, that you would open up our eyes to see, that you would prepare our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, welcome church. Uh, it's good to have you gathering in the ways that you are, whether you're with each other in house church or watching from the comfort of your home. Uh, I hope that God will speak to you today as uh, we're going through Colossians and we're, we're several weeks into Colossians right now. And believe it or not, we just uh, are kind of finished the intro to Colossians because it had a bit of a longer intro a couple of weeks ago. And so we're diving more and more into the meat of what's going on right now. Uh, and so I'm going to read from Colossians. We're starting chapter two today. Uh, we're going to be in chapter two, verses one to five. And we're going to be talking about plausible heresy, one of my favorite topics to talk about. So let's jump in. You can read Colossians chapter two, verse one to five. Uh, and don't forget that it's really easy to invite someone to church. You text them a link to our YouTube uh, page or onlinechurch.nyc so that they can watch along with you. All right, let's jump in. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. For I want you to know, again, this is Paul talking, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Last week, if you were with us, uh, it's important to kind of give a, a brief intro from last week. Uh, this is a two-part section that we're reading right now. It started last week and Tiffany preached on it where Paul talks about his purpose, his aim, his ministry. What is he called to do by God? And he gives an overview of how what he is called to do is to present uh, the bride to God. And um, he, he wants to present a mature bride to God. And, and so... We, we got this overview of what Paul uh, is called to do for the church as a whole. Uh, and then this week, uh, in the second part, as we talk about his calling and his ministry, his purpose, his aim, he narrows it down, not only about what he is called to do as a church, which is to present us mature before God, as we read last week, but now he comes to the Colossian church specifically and the church in the area. Laodicea, as you heard me read, was a church right next to the Colossian church. And so what is his purpose? What is his aim for this specific church? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and so if we read chapter 2, verse 1, it starts off like this. For, for I, I want you to know how great a struggle... I have for you. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What's really interesting, as we covered in the first week, Paul has not even met these people in the church in Colossae, this house church uh, that he is writing this letter to. One of his ministry partners, Epaphras, 
uh, went out who was a native of the city of Colossae, and he was the one that brought the gospel of hope, uh, as we learned three weeks ago, to the church in Colossae. And the gospel of hope, when it was brought, it, it sprung forth in this overflowing of faith and love in, in that Gentile community. And we see these Gentiles, these non-Jews, convert to Christianity and believe in the gospel. The gospel bears fruit in their life, bears fruit in this community. And so Paul hasn't even met them. He, he is writing a letter to them, and he starts off saying, I want you to know that I struggle for you guys. And this word struggle really means that I labor intensely or I, I do a lot of hard work for you. And even though he has never even met them, it, it might be a weird thing to say um, that he, he's never even seen these people. He's never met them. They, they, they know of his name. He knows of their names, but that's it. But yet here's Paul starting off his 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 purpose to them. And he starts off with this idea that he is struggling hard for them. He is he is, is putting in labor, he's putting in hard work for their maturity and, and for this church. And you know, I was thinking, as I was reading this, I was thinking about how in the last year, there have been a lot of people in the church that uh, I have not met personally and that our leadership team has not met. And it really struck me about two months ago when we had our first uh, membership class, we just uh, finished our membership classes last week with our, our new round of members. I'm really excited to introduce our new members to the church. We're going to be doing that uh, hopefully on our uh, anniversary service coming up in a little while. Uh, and the first week I, I get on and I realized there were, a, there were a bunch of people I'd never met in person before that were on this. In fact, that was my first time meeting them uh, was at the membership meeting. If that was you, woohoo, like it was really cool to meet you. You left an impact on me. And I realized that, um, man, the, the, the labor, the hard work, the prayers, the, 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 the meetings, the leadership meetings, the staff meetings, uh, the house church leaders and their teams, all of what they're doing, we are laboring like what Paul is talking about here. I have not even met a lot of people. A lot of our leadership has not met a lot of the new people that have come to the church in this last year, but we hear the stories of the gospel bearing fruit in your life. When I talk to house church leaders, when I talk to other leaders in the church and they share, look at what's happening here, look at what's happening here. I hear the names, I hear the stories. And it feels a lot like Paul here where he hasn't met them, but yet his whole life is revolved around working hard towards this community bearing fruit. And so it's really been a lot like the last year for our leadership team where, you know, this is, this is our life ambition. This is our life calling uh, for the members of the church. This is, this is what God has called us on mission to do. And we haven't met a lot of the new people in the church yet. We hear of the fruit, we're excited about it, and we labor daily in order to present a mature bride uh, before God. And uh, so I, 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 I get what Paul is saying here. Yeah, he's never met this church, but that does not diminish the hard work, the prayers, the labor that he has put in to seeing the Colossian church uh, mature. God has called him to the body. Even though he hasn't met this particular house church yet, God has called him uh, to mature them and to grow them. And he is struggling. He is working hard on their behalf. 
But what is he working hard to do specifically for the Colossian church? Well, well Paul gives this list, and it's a great list. He, he says these three things that he's struggling for on their behalf, or he's working hard for on their behalf. He says, for their hearts to be strengthened, for them to be knit together in love, and for them to reach the fullness of Christ's treasure. I love these three things that Paul outlines here. The first thing where he says their hearts to be strengthened. The heart in Jewish terminology um, and, and, and what Paul's understanding of the heart would be is not our understanding of the heart where it's just more of an emotional capital uh, of the body, but the heart encompassed the will, encompassed the emotions, encompassed the thought, the affection of people is really uh, what we would consider today the soul. And so when scripture says to love God with your whole mind, heart, and soul, it's really just saying the three different words saying the same thing. So when, when Paul says he wants their heart to be strengthened, he wanted to see them strengthen holistically, everything about them, their emotional well-being, their thought life, their knowledge, their wisdom, uh, their... their um, their, their will, their emotion, everything, their thought life, their affections, all these things, he wanted to see that strengthen. That's what he was laboring towards. That's what he was struggling for. He wanted them to be knit together, the second thing that he says, in love. This also means, if you look at the Greek, that he wanted, he, he was struggling for them to be instructed in the ways of love. We, we keep talking about this word love, and I mentioned in, in a previous sermon um, that love is not, how, again, it's a word that we use today and is translated as love, but it's not really a love that, that we think of when we think of like goosebumps and emotional, like, oh, I love you, ben, you know, bendito, or, you know, like I, 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 this, this kind of, you know, I, this emotional, this heartfelt reaction to somebody or something. Love in scripture is not a feeling. It's an action. It's actionable. So, and it's, it's a fruit of the spirit that we grow in. And so Paul is laboring that they would be instructed in love or being knit together in love, in the, in the fruit of the spirit, in the action of love, which from love flows all the different fruit of the spirit, of patience, of kindness, of self-control, right? Of not getting your own way, all of these things. This is Paul is laboring so that they can grow in this understanding of love, grow in there, and, and, and as a community and how they treat one another, how they treat the world at large around them. And the third thing that he says is he's struggling for them to reach the fullness of Christ's treasure, right? And, and Paul just has these, you know, Tiffany talked about this last week, these crazy run-on sentences, and he has so much stuff in there, and he says, that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what he is, is saying is that there is only one place where Christians, Christ followers, should hunt for knowledge, should desire wisdom and knowledge in only one place that they should search it out and find it. And that is in Christ. And, and Paul is struggling, he is laboring, he is working hard to make sure that this church, in all of their seeking, in all of their finding, in all of their searching, that they are searching out the depths of the riches of Christ and the treasure of knowledge and wisdom to be found in him. 
that when they're like a pirate looking for a treasure chest, that mystery that is supposed to be unveiled, that mystery, which is Christ, that they, all of the things that they are putting their energy towards, the things that they are searching out, the things that they are caring for, that they are loving, that all of it would be found in Christ. And so these three things, why is Paul going into detail about what he is, is struggling on their behalf for? What, what's the, the point of this? Well, Paul goes into detail about his purpose for this church specifically um, because this next verse is actually the first verse that we see here where we see that there's a, a problem starting to arise in the church of Colossae. It's something is happening that is what Paul up until this point has been hinting at when he keeps talking about the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the hope of the gospel, not walking it away, standing firm in their faith, right? That if they continue, then they will get the imperishable inheritance. We've, we've had a lot of subtleties of like, what is Paul getting at when he keeps talking about all this? Well, this next verse is where we, we understand kind of what Paul has been hinting at, but hasn't yet explicitly said until now. And he says it here. What, what is he revealing what most likely prompted this letter to the church in Colossae? And it's verse four. He says, I say this, you know, to wrap up kind of what I was talking about, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say that so that nobody would delude you with plausible arguments. There were false teachers that were coming in to the church in Colossae that was, they were trying to steer the church in the wrong way. They were trying to steer the church uh, away from the gospel. But, was, but what was particularly scary about these teachers is they, they weren't coming out with like crazy heresy that me and you would be easily able to identify was heretical, right? Uh, you know, an easy heretical statement is, is Jesus was just a person and not God. We would all understand that's heresy. But what, was, what they were coming in, Paul uses this term, he says, plausible arguments. So this was heresy that was particularly scary because it sounded good. It sounded a lot like the gospel. It sounded a lot like what they had heard. And it, 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 it was plausibly, it was plausible, meaning it was, it was potentially true. It had a lot of merit to it. Maybe it said a lot of the same things, used a lot of the same words that Paul, um, Epaphras used when he went and preached the gospel to him. A lot of the, the, the same concepts, the same thoughts, but in a couple of key areas started to go off. Uh, and that is actually a lot more scary uh, than outright heresy because outright heresy, there's easy, it's easy to draw a line in the sand and say, you're on this side and I'm on, I'm on that side. Um, and, and we can say like there's clear non-agreement and this is clearly what the Bible says, but plausible heresy is, hey, they, they are saying a lot of things that sound really good. But Paul is identifying that, yeah, it sounds good, but what's going to happen is if you start going down that path, you are going to be led into destruction. What sounds good actually is going to be something that steers you away from the gospel, steers you away from the mystery of Jesus and the treasures and the wisdom and the knowledge to be found in him, and it will lead you where every other path leads you that does not lead you to Jesus, and that is to destruction 
and eternity away from him. So it's really good to read about here is, is thankfully the church of Colossae hadn't given in to this heresy yet. They, they hadn't, you know, some of the letters that we read that Paul uh, writes to the churches, some of them have given in already and Paul is firmly correcting them. Uh, some of them are on the verge of giving in, but we're reading here in Colossae that they actually have not given in yet to the heresy. Uh, Paul says right after verse four, he says that he was rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. So here are these false teachers trying to come in. They have a very plausible argument, plausible heresy that sounds really good, sounds like the gospel. Paul says that he sees the order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. They have not given themselves over to this heresy, but it was a possibility, right? In David's sermon a few weeks ago, there was that huge if statement that if you do not stay strong and endure, right, that, that you will walk away from the faith. So there's a possibility still that they will give in to this heresy, but Paul is preemptively writing it, hearing about it, writing to them to make sure that they don't. And these, these words that he uses, their good order and their firmness, are actually military terms. And, and so Paul is, picture with me, you know, if you've watched any of, any of the great movies, great battles, you have, you know, Troy or Braveheart or Gladiator, where, what do you see? Uh, when the armies uh, line up, you have all of the army, you have their, their front lines and they have all their shields. Uh, and their shield is to repel the, the arrows from the enemy and the initial attacks uh, from the enemy. And so Paul, what, in, in this, in what he's saying, their order and their firmness, he, he is talking about them in military terms, kind of giving this picture of the Colossian house church as, as a, a, a entering into battle. And the, the other side of the battle, the, the army that is coming to attack them, the enemy that is coming to invade is the heretical arguments, these plausible arguments, the heresy about the faith and the heresy about Jesus. But Paul, like a commander, is looking over the battle arrangement and looking over them and he's saying, he, and he is, he is giving his check mark and saying, it looks like you are in order, your, your order formation is good and your firmness of faith in Christ. And, and I love how the, the firmness or, or their defense is lumped in with their faith in Christ because as we read in Ephesians 6, where Paul writes that what is our defense against the wiles of the enemy? What is the, our shield that protects us against the arrows and the attacks of the enemy? It is our shield of faith. And so Paul is looking at this church. He's saying, you are entering into battle. And the enemy is throwing out. Did you know that heresy in scripture is seen as an incoming enemy that will come in to try to destroy the church and that there is heresy today, right now, that is trying to enter and in many places has entered into the church and has destroyed the church, has taken it off its mission and has defeated it in battle because we have not kept up our shield of faith in Jesus, right? If, if 
Our greatest defense in every battle against any enemy is Christ. Our greatest defense is faith in him that whenever a heresy comes, ultimately what it will do is it will divert our attention away from Jesus to other things that will say what you want is you want Jesus plus these other things. You want Jesus as well as X, Y, and Z. Or some of them, the more obvious ones, just take Jesus out of the picture. Jesus is a, an option for your life. Jesus is one of the paths to heaven. Jesus is one scenario that you can get there. And so those are obvious heresies, but the plausible heresies are the ones where Jesus is still in the picture, but Jesus is not the only object of our faith. That's what I want to talk a little bit more about with you today because in many of Paul's letters, we see him combating false doctrine. And, and sometimes, like I said, they've already taken root and, and sometimes they haven't. And in Colossae, we see that they haven't. Uh, and, and this is not something that went away in church history. Church history is rife. You know, you can literally read all of church history through the lens of heresy and the different heresies that have tried to enter into the church. They started from the very beginning with Paul's letters. We see them very clearly. We see it in the book of Acts. And it continues to this day, and you can read the narrative of the church through the lens of heresy that has tried to take over the church and many times has been successful in infiltrating the church. And Paul saw his... He says, I'm with you in spirit when he looks at them at looking over their orderliness and their firmness in the faith. It was his job to help them defend against these heresies, to inspect the church and make sure that they were not entering in, that their, their defense was strong. And so uh, I, I constantly see this as one of my job descriptions as the pastor of this church to inspect our defenses, to look over how our church is doing and, and be able to, as Paul was doing to the Colossian church, speak to the different things that may be trying to infiltrate us so that we can have an orderliness to our faith and a firmness of our faith in Jesus. Today is no different. We have plausible heresies that are trying to enter into the church. In fact, uh, we're going to get deeper and deeper into this heresy in the Colossian church. And so we're going to be going over different types of, of heresy that, that have been coming in that specifically Paul is talking to. But today I want to talk about um, two plausible heresies that I think are very threatening to the church today because they sound like the gospel, but they are not the gospel. They may use similar terminology to the gospel, but have very different conclusions than the gospel. And that's the scary thing. That's where, that's where the, this becomes a, a fight, a true fight, where it's one army on, on one side and another army on another. Do not be blinded that the enemy may not be physically in front of you with a sword or a gun to your head saying, convert or die, believe in this or not, but it is still an enemy that is looking to destroy your life, take your eyes off Jesus, and make sure that you do not end up in eternity with God. It is still an enemy that has very real power, that is very, very readily present today. 
And the enemy is still looking in weaknesses to our defense, which is really weaknesses in our faith in Jesus. And so we have to be on the lookout constantly, not to be scared of the enemy because we know we have victory. We're not scared of the enemy, but we have to search out God for his wisdom and his knowledge so that we are not blind and ignorant of the enemy that is present before us. Because if we're blind and ignorant to the enemy that is, blind, that is present before us, then it's very easy to let our defense down and to let the enemy, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing, come in and begin to wreak havoc on the church. And so two, two heresies that I want to talk about today. Uh, the first that I think is prevalent, I don't believe is very prevalent in particularly our church, uh, but I believe it's in, prevalent in the church in America. And I can see how we have many times teetered on the edge in our church with this, and, and that is this, Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is, is very much like something else we've talked about a lot, Christian moralism. Christian moralism says that in order to be saved, you need Jesus plus the works of the law or the Torah to be saved. So moralism says you need the works of the law you need to have good deeds plus Jesus in order to enter into salvation. That it's not the saving grace, redemption work of Jesus alone that saves us, but it is Jesus plus works of the law. That's Christian moralism. Well, Christian nationalism says this. It says in order to be saved, we need Jesus plus our American state. Jesus alone is not enough. It is Jesus plus the state of America that will bring salvation to the earth. In, in both ideas, salvation hinges not only on Jesus, but on other things being in right order besides Jesus. In one, there is me performing the works of the law. The other, it is the American state being whole um, and and following God. And so Christian nationalism says things that sound really great and sound like the gospel if you've heard it. Three things that I hear. Corporate sin is bad. Sounds good. We should have godly leaders. Sounds really good. We should not tolerate sin in our collective state or community. These things sound really good and they sound a lot like some of the things that we read in scripture. But when Christian nationalists say this, and they may not define themselves as Christian nationalism, so this is where, you know, people, you know, it's like people don't say that they're racist. You know, nobody says that they're racist. Like, oh yeah, I'm a racist, right? Everybody denies that they are racist, but when you look at their actions and their, and their words, that is when you can identify where racism uh, exists a lot of times with people. And so Christian national, many people will not say that, yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist, but when Christian nationalists say this, they are talking, when they say corporate sin is bad, we should have godly leaders and we should not tolerate sin in community, they are, they are talking about the state. They are talking about America. They are not talking about the church, the body of Christ. And that's where you see the big difference there. See, scripture is clear on all of these points. If 
we are talking about the body of Christ. If we are talking about the church, the salvation of humankind does not hinge on whether America stays godly or not, plus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Salvation does not hinge. The salvation of humankind does not hinge on whether America is godly or not, plus Christ. It hinges solely on Christ and his sacrifice. And that is it. In fact, whenever we see Christian nationalism in history, we see atrocities done in the name of Christ. There are lots of examples, but I'm just going to give you three. When the states in Europe became, when the Protestant Reformation happened, what happened is is the state and, and religion were so closely linked that every state had a declared religion. In all the states in Europe, their declared religion was Catholicism. And so when the Protestant Reformation happened, Protestants, uh, let's say like where Luther was born, Germany, there are many German states and factions that became Protestant in state. And so what did they do? They started killing Catholics, right? Because it was Christian nationalism that we were converting by force, that if you did not believe what we did, that it, there was, it was like sin entering into the body. It was corporate grievance. It was not tolerating sin in the community. And so Christian nationalism said that we had to kill these people. If you read all, you know, so often Christians only read about the Protestant martyrs during the Protestant Reformation, but we forget how many Catholics we killed as well during the Protestant Reformation because of this understanding in the state of Christian nationalism. The other, the second example is colonialism had roots in Christian nationalism. What was it? The spread of Christianity was not linked to the spread of the gospel. The spread of Christianity was linked to the spread of the state. So if you look at Britain, you look at Portugal, you look at Spain, they did all of these things in the name of God, but really it was just Christian nationalism wasn't truly the gospel. So when they came here, the work of God was a conquering of a land and many times colonialism. It was not... I want to convert these people to Jesus when they met the natives. It was, I want to convert them to our way of life because they're savages and we aren't, right? And so that means that it is not just Jesus that brings salvation, but it is Jesus plus our way of life that will save this indigenous population. That is colonialism. That is Christian nationalists. And the third example that we see is manifest destiny. You know, this is probably a word that you have not heard since you were in seventh grade. I haven't heard this word in so long, but while I was preparing this, I was like, what is that thing where we went west in America and we went with saying it was God's, you know, ordained right for us? And so I did what any good millennial does. And I went on Google and I was like, I know that I was like, it's not eminent domain. That's just when the government steals your land and then pretends to pay a fair price for it. Uh, it was, and, and, I, and then I, I Google going west with God's command in America and manifest destiny, there it was. But manifest destiny was the spread of the state or America westward. And it was linked to God's divine plan 
rather than the spread of the gospel westward. Do you see the difference there? That God's plan was the spread of capitalism and America West. And that was what Manifest Destiny was. It was not God's divine plan and it wasn't the spread of the gospel West. And that, that's Christian nationalism. Like, yeah, we, we, we want to have everybody do it the way we do it because we have the best uh, ways of life. We have the best culture and we have the best religion. And so this understanding that we even see a lot today is when, this, I think this is a good way to, to ask yourself, has this heresy been coming in for me? And when you start losing hope in the world because you are losing hope in your country, you have started to subscribe to Christian nationalism. When you start to see, and I hear it all the time, this country is going down the tubes, this, you know, it's getting worse and worse, the sin is getting bad, you see this, you see that, that all may be true, quite frankly. But when, when you lose your hope in the world because of that, then what happens is you have started to enter into Christian nationalism because if your hope is placed in Jesus as your savior, which does not change, which will not change depending on the American state or not, then no matter what our country looks like, we will look at Jesus and our hope will stay the same. But when we have our hope start diverted into other things like the state and the decline of the state or our understanding of the state, then our hope will start to fade away because our hope is in our country and not in Jesus. And so if you look at the country, whether you perceive things are going good or bad and your hope begins to diminish or it begins to grow because things are doing good or bad, then you have started to subscribe to a heresy that can truly take you away from Jesus and could be something that can catastrophically destroy your faith in the future. The other prevalent one that I see in here, even in our church, is the prosperity gospel. Now, I talk about this every once in a while, uh, and I'm going to continue to talk about it every once in a while until I see that it's rooted out in our common language and understanding. Because just as it was Paul's job to defend and inspect, it is my job to defend and inspect. Here are some things that I think you will hear that sound good in the prosperity gospel. I'll give you three sayings that I hear commonly. Blessed and highly favored. The best is yet to come. God wants me to be happy. These are three sayings. I could go on with the sayings. I mean, it's everywhere in Western theology and in America. Uh, and so let's, let's break down each one real quick. You know, yes, you are blessed and highly favored. There's no doubt about that. Tiffany covered this last week, that we do live in victory. We are blessed. We are highly favored. This is what God calls us people. We are inheritance. We have the inheritance of the king. But when that blessing is no longer work, uh, linked to the internal work of the Holy Spirit and a guarantee for heaven that the Holy Spirit provides and instead is linked to wealth, is linked to health and happiness, you are currently experiencing in this moment, you have gone off. If, if you say I am blessed and highly favored and that, that blessing and that favor of God is linked to how happy you are doing, to how, how much wealth you have accumulated and to how healthy you are in this moment, 
then you have given in to this plausible heresy that sounds a lot like scripture, uses scripture to back it up, but actually diverts away from Jesus and puts hope in your health and your wealth and, 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 and your current happiness and takes it away from your hope in Jesus. So when you're talking about being blessed and highly favored, if you are not talking about the internal work that the Holy Spirit has done in your salvation to secure you an inheritance with Jesus, with eternal life, with the imperishable reward of being in heaven forever with the Son, and instead you are talking about an external work of materialistic things that you have or how you are feeling, then you are walking into heresy. This other one, yes, the best is yet to come. Absolutely, the best is yet to come. But when, you, when people say that, what we usually mean is things will get better. You'll get a new job. You'll get over that hump. You won't experience suffering in the future. Don't worry. And what happens is we, we take our eyes off of the present trials and we put them in a future, a hopeful future of happiness and comfort. When what God is trying to do is he's trying to use our present trial, he's trying to use our present sufferings to grow our character and our endurance, as it says in James, to perfect our faith. Yet when you say the best is yet to come, what you're saying many times is don't worry, don't don't get through this, don't endure this, just put your hope that you will be happy again in the future and that you'll get a better promotion, things will get better. And, and, but what does scripture say? Scripture says tomorrow is not promised for us. Paul continued to suffer over and over and over again for his faith. In fact, if you read his biography, he lived a life of suffering until he was executed for the faith. Many of the, every single one of the apostles were martyred. And if you look at their life, it was a life of suffering. David and Tiffany both hit on this, that when God invites us to follow him, he invites us into a life of victory, simultaneously inviting us into a life of suffering with him. And that is a mark of a Christian. So if you mean, when you say the best is yet to come, if you mean, I'll see you in heaven, where there is no more weeping, there is no more sickness, that there is no more tears, there is no more sorrow, then yes, the best is yet to come. Sure. But usually when we say that, we're not using it as a reminder of our impending death and resurrection with Christ and our new bodies and the new heavens and the new earth. Usually when we say that, what we are saying is, don't worry, honey, it will get better tomorrow. And we put our hope in some future comfort, in some future pay raise, in some future vacation, rather than putting our hope in Jesus and him alone. And this third thing, God wants me to be happy. See, God wants you to be joyful. And there are Two words that are worlds apart. See, happiness and suffering cannot coexist because happiness is an emotional state of our things going my way. 
Joy only comes when things are going his way or when my will is submitted to his will. See, joy actually is something that we are promised in suffering, in good times, in high times, in low times, in abundance, and in need. Nowhere in scripture does it say that God wants you to be happy. Everywhere in scripture does it say God will provide you with joy in every circumstance. See, happiness is predicated on making sure things go my way. Joy is predicated on the peace and filling of the Holy Spirit. I can have the peace of God that surpasses understanding in every and every circumstance. I can be filled with the Holy Spirit no matter where I am, as Paul was when he was in jail, whether I'm going through a hard time, whether I lost my job, whether I have illness in my body, whatever is happening around me, I can still be filled with the Holy Spirit because just like Job, the accuser may be able to take everything All the things may be able to be gone. All the things that I cherish here on earth may be taken away. But one thing the accuser will never be able to take from me, and that is my faith and salvation in Jesus. And on that alone stands my joy. So guess what? I will not always be happy, and God is not interested in my happiness, but I will always live in joy because things almost never go my way, and I am so happy that they don't, because his ways are higher than my ways. His ways are better than my ways. And his will is so much greater than mine. And joy is so much better than happiness that can be here one day and gone the next and is no place to store up your hope because it is nothing that is assured for us for tomorrow or even later in this day. It's so easy to fall into these traps and there's so many other plausible heresies that can come. It's so many things that come and and, and say, it sounds like Jesus, it sounds like the gospel, it sounds like scripture and maybe even uses scripture. Do you know the enemy knows more scripture than me and you? That when he tempts Jesus, what does he tempt him with? He tempts him with scripture but he does it heretically. So we have to be on guard. We cannot be ignorant. We cannot be blind to the devices of the enemy that they are arraying in battle formation against the church, even right now in the midst of this pandemic, to lose hope, to lose joy, to not keep our faith in Jesus and to start putting it in other things. But no, stand firm in your faith in Christ. If you are not searching out the depths of Christ, but are constantly searching out the depths of Facebook, YouTube, Netflix, CNN, Fox, then you will discover not the hidden treasures of Jesus, but the plausible arguments of man that lead to destruction. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you keep us firm and in order as a church. 
that we would stand firm with the shield of faith against every wile or attack of the enemy. Lord, even in the midst of this pandemic right now, I I pray over our church that you would fill us with joy. We have had so many people lose loved ones, Lord. We've even lost some of our very own in this church, God. We don't want to go into another round of lockdown. And there's so many things that are trying to steal our hope and trying to steal our faith in you. But Father, as they come, that we would array together as an army, Lord, locked Side by side, Lord, with our shield of faith standing firm in Christ together, that no matter what attack of the enemy comes, no matter what tries to steal our hope or tries to sound like the gospel and divert our attention from Jesus, God, that we would stand firm in the faith and that we would endure, Father, and that you would perfect our faith. And as we walk into this new season as a church, that we would walk into it with the joy that only God can provide, that comes with the peace and the overwhelming sense of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.